0: Can I <laughs> This past Monday was July 1st, Canada Day, and the local Classic Rock station threw a big ol' party in Woodbine Park not far from where we live. All day long I could hear anonymous cover bands doing what seemed to be credible versions of Mitch Ryder and Van Halen and The Stones and Credence. I got no closer than Queen and Rhodes because the girlfriend was in New Jersey for the weekend and I was home with the Pets. I was tempted to head out at some point but I don't love crowds and I knew I wanted to be home when the fireworks started so the animals didn't freak out. But I did the math as I walked the pooch and I remembered that of course Canada's birthday is precisely 100 years before my own. I was conceived and born on either side of the centennial in 1967, which apparently was a pretty big deal. As I understand it, the popular history of Montreal suggests that 1967 was a peak moment. The 1960s, we are all bored of hearing, of course, saw the assassinations of two Kennedys, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, accompanying riots, the Vietnam War, the sexual revolution, the birth of Women's Lib and the gay rights era, and in Canada, a burgeoning separatist movement in Quebec that would include robbery, bombings, and killings culminating in the October crisis of 1970. But the 1960s were also a genuinely optimistic time in Canada, and Montreal was then the country's largest city, its economic and cultural, multicultural hub. But coming into its own on the international stage was the ongoing national theme since after the Second World War, or even the first. Still, Remember, Canada's national flag until 1965 still bore the Union Jack from Britain in the upper left corner. The Maple Leaf was introduced the same day the Beatles released eight days a week as a single in the U.S., if that helps put it in some kind of cultural context for you. Or at least it gives you a sense of the sunny vibe that was going on. Montreal was awarded the World's Exposition for 1967, Canada's centennial year, in late 1962, and the city, already known as a Euro-flavored party town, started hopping. A subway system was being built for the first time, and the Expo 67 site would be constructed on a series of new man-made islands alongside Ile-Saint-Hélène, between the island of Montreal and the South Shore. It was a struggle to get it all done in time, in fact, the expo grounds weren't quite complete in time for the opening ceremonies, but Expo 67 attracted enough visitors from all over the world, 50 million, to make it the fourth best attended expo ever. And it seemed to unite Canadians, French and English, in a way that even the wars couldn't have done, and nothing has since. If Expo 67 was a peak, then was it all just downhill from there? The end of the 60s was pretty bleak if one looks past Woodstock to the Stone's deadly Altamont show and to the Kent State killings of four student protesters in Ohio. Canada's liberal government, at the request of the Quebec provincial government and Montreal's, responded to the kidnapping of a Quebec minister and a British diplomat by the separatist FLQ by invoking the War Measures Act, essentially suspending civil liberties in Quebec as law enforcement tried to find the kidnapped men. Most Canadians supported the act, but perhaps not surprisingly, it was unpopular in Quebec. And you can draw a pretty straight line from the invocation of the act to the growing support for Quebec's sovereignty, if not outright independence, and through to the 1976 election of Quebec's first political party devoted to independence, the Parti Québécois. Montreal's economic superiority was doomed, though. Fear of a split Canada prompted many anglophones in the province to move elsewhere and many corporate head offices did the same. Old white bread Toronto the good was to be the main beneficiary of Quebec's decline. Whether Quebec resolves its ongoing issues within or without Canada, who knows. The PQ is back in power again and the language debates have heated up once more, so I wouldn't rule anything out two referenda in fifteen years on the question of a political split in a large and mostly affluent democracy seems unlikely, but it happened. Why isn't a third possible? But here's what I started thinking about when I remembered that Canada turned 146 the year I'll turn 46. Wouldn't it be something to be around in 2067? To see the Canadian bicentennial? It's, you know, not impossible. I can't think of anyone in my family tree who made it to a hundred. If my godson Justin, named for the son of the man who invoked the War Measures Act, by the way, makes it to seniorhood, he'll be just about there. But for me, frankly, I doubt it will happen. But I remember the hullabaloo of America's bicentennial in 76, and even if it was over-the-top and ubiquitous, it was pretty great to an eight-year-old history nerd. America whatever its faults, is a country with a rich history and iconography, and a knack for telling its own story on the grandest possible scale. At the very least, that's fun to behold. Take as many grains of salt as you will with it. I don't know that I need to hear a cover band in the park playing Panama or Willie and the Poor Boys to celebrate Canada, but it's summertime, Maybe not the time to think so much. It gets cold up here, so all of our jazz and comedy and theater festivals are in full swing this time of year, and I have a show to do myself. Happy birthday to Canada and the USA. I didn't get you anything. Pretty much, episode 25, Summer Birthdays. Written and read by Scott Clarkson. Music by Bobby Gimby and Garner Firebird.